0: Hello and welcome to Model View Conversation, America's premier tech education podcast. I'm Brian Gates. And I'm Ben Golgi. And we have been doing this for a long time. Not the podcast exactly, although that's been going on for we're into the second season here. But uh, we've been involved in developer education for what turns out to be a shockingly long period of time, Ben.
1: Yes. Uh, we've been involved. I've been involved since 2015, and I think you're maybe just a little bit. Longer than that?
0: Just a little bit, but I will hold that over you forever, yes. Perhaps a few 20, months, and I'm sure I'll never the end of it. <laughs> you never will. <laughs> yeah, twenty fall of 2014, almost five years ago.
1: Wow. Uh, just check the calendar, real quick update. Uh, you were saying that we've been doing the podcast for a while. That's true. We'll actually hit our one-year anniversary on hey. the 30th of August, which will happen between this episode and the next one that we launch. So we won't... Right. We'll probably celebrate next time, but we're coming up on a year, which is pretty great. Yeah.
0: So if you see us around town, feel free to buy us a cheeseburger or something in celebration of our efforts.
1: Very good. Uh, so regarding tech education, which includes both the podcast that we co-host and also our involvement with various educational efforts like meetups and uh, schools and things, um, we wanted to talk about uh, the basically the landscape of developer education and how it's evolved. Really just from, from a few years ago to now, we don't necessarily even have to go back decades we can just simply concentrate on on the last few years because there's been so much uh churn and and change in that field um we felt that it was interesting and important to talk about kind of how that has changed and and what that looks like now for people who are just getting into development today
0: right and the first thing that strikes me is simply the material that is being presented and we could say it at the time that a lot of the stuff we were teaching didn't exist uh The stuff we taught in 2014, 2015 did not exist when, say, we were going to college, but we had gone to college several years earlier. And once again, that's true, right, Ben? The stuff that you're teaching now at Lambda is different than the stuff that you were teaching just because the the actual technology is different.
1: For sure, yeah. When I started teaching in 2015 at the Iron Yard, um, we were doing almost entirely Objective-C. Swift had been announced the prior summer, but it was... It had gone into like 1.0 GM status, but it was very, very new, um, and most people didn't know how to work with it, and a, a language is much more than maybe a library or something smaller in development. A language is really something you have to live with for a while and understand the nuance, nuances of and stuff like that, so um, it's it's much harder to, to learn, um, and then certainly in order to be able to teach it, you have to know it well, so we started with uh, just a tiny bit of an introduction to Swift, um, and... Mostly bit of C. and now we do the exact opposite at lambda. We're teaching almost entirely Swift, and we do offer two weeks of to C just to make sure that you have the fundamentals. It's still important uh, to know that as a as a language for iOS development. Lots and lots of legacy code is still written in that language, and it's important for you at least be able to read it and understand it. Maybe do a little bit of light writing of that code. Um, but as far as kind of the way that I teach people, that has definitely changed a lot because the approaches, of those two languages are very different. And so you, not only do you have to code them differently but you also have to teach
0: them differently. And um, I wanna get into how do you teach them differently? But first I'm curious how the language itself has changed from Swift 1 a long time ago to now and also uh, how the ecosystem has grown up around it.
1: Yeah, so from Swift 1 to, we're at this point at Swift 5.0 as of this uh, airing of this episode, we're at 5.0 and 5.1 will be coming out um, in a few weeks time in theory, when Apple um, releases the new versions of iOS and macOS and all the other associated tools um, in the fall. But uh, that change from 1.0 to 5.0 has been pretty massive. Um, we've had source code stability. We've had ABI stability. Um, we've had uh, massive changes in syntax. We, they've added a lot of new things. I mean, for example, uh, Guard, Lead, and some other language features did, did not exist initially in the software um, in the language they've done things to make more of the runtime swift specific so a lot of things early on were actually just um, bridged over to Dr. c and so you'd use things like ns string which is a class that's actually part of the other language not part of swift but you'd kind of use it in in swift anyway um, and they've since fixed a lot of that that kind of the the growing pains that are associated with building a language right you can't you want to build everything you don't have time to do that so they, they kind of stood on the shoulders of, of the giant that was the previous language and um, incorporated new features. And then over time, they've, they've made those features then more native to the language itself so that now we can write code that is fully Swift um, and, and is done in what's called a Swifty way. So the, the, even the approaches about things are different because, of course, when you express yourself in English versus how you might express yourself in French or Spanish or German or some other language, um that expression you know that maybe the overall meaning is roughly the same but the expression can be very different and that's that's true in programming languages as much as it is in spoken languages so you have to kind of learn the nuance of how to express things in that right. the new the, language
0: the, the idiom of swift versus objective c so exactly. it sounds like there was some of the same kind of development that javascript had that initially there were uh, shortcomings or things just missing in the language and tools, shims of different kinds had to be developed in order to get over those. And as successive versions come along, the language developers could look over that landscape and say, oh, that would be useful. We should do that ourselves. And so pulled in these concepts so that uh, there was a just one central body of knowledge that people had to master, which generally makes things easier.
1: Right. Yeah. So you don't have shims anymore. You now have native language features that are that are baked right in.
0: Right, that's something that was starting to happen in JavaScript of 2014 or so. The language itself had been um, not very powerful for a long time, or at least not um, very, it didn't change very much. I think the last major version had been in 2009. Wow. And yeah, there, and it, as a consequence of that, people had to come up with all these shims and workarounds and things jQuery, probably the most famous one that let you do a lot of stuff that people, everybody working with JavaScript wanted to do. And then JavaScript started to feel limiting. And probably 2014 was the time when the first generation of, uh, of frameworks and libraries started to come out. Um, the kinds of things that Angular and React and Vue and those guys are doing now, there were a whole other generation of them that we don't need to go in the names for that existed then. And I think even Angular, Angular, React, and Ember were all in existence, but not very widely used uh, at the time. And just from then until now, we've seen JavaScript as a pretty stable, unchanging language, and then frameworks, and then for a while it felt like a framework of the week. And now there, there are plans that, uh, it sounds like the same kind of schedule that Swift is on where Upgrades to the language itself are happen, happening on a yearly basis.
1: Who's in charge of JavaScript as a language? Is there like a governing body for it?
0: it there is. Uh, the official name of the, I think the underlying standard is ECMAScript. It's like the European Consortium of Manufacturers <laughs> of America, which that doesn't make any sense. No, like it doesn't. EC- ECMA sticks in your head, but... Uh, yeah, there, there is an official body, and so they promulgate the official things that the language is supposed to include. Uh, and although there is a disconnect that I think only JavaScript is faced with, which is they can decide all day long what the language is supposed to be able to do, but in the real world, people interact with JavaScript mainly through a browser. And the browser people have representation in that governing body, but they're not in charge of, nor are they kind of beholden to that governing body. So these new language features come out, And the browser people can kind of take them or leave them and and incorporate them into the browsers on their own time.
1: And that's why you see things like, this site works only in Chrome. Please change your browser to, you know, to display the experience properly.
0: Right. You don't see that quite as much as you used to. And uh, that's probably a combination of JavaScript and also CSS is subject to the same sort of, um, of, of break between the people in charge of the language and the people in charge of implementing the language. But yeah, that's uh, another area where things have developed massively over just the past few years.
1: So with all of this churn and change, I I know that us as as senior developers are kind of, you know, maybe we're not any happier about that change, but we certainly are more used to the idea of this stuff changing so often.
0: Resigned to it.
1: Right, so uh, with that in mind, how do you think the um, the expectations for juniors has changed for things like front end development now in 2019 compared to how it was when you started teaching in 2014? I know that you're a dev- the developer again, but you certainly work with people of different um, you know different stripes and and different levels of experience. Um, what would you consider to be kind of the the new maybe the new minimum for for what? somebody would need to know to be a competent junior developer.
0: The expectation seems to be that there's going to be some of one of the major frameworks has been mastered is kind of a, a loose word. It can mean different things different people, but you need to be experienced with one of the major frameworks. I think that's, that seems like the biggest standalone change that people almost don't call themselves JavaScript developers at this point. They're, React or Angular, certainly the jobs are React or Angular or Vue positions. And I'd say the other big change is that um, there has been a more of a narrowing in some sense. I don't know if this has happened in the iOS world or not, but at one time when JavaScript was a simpler, more limited thing, there was an expectation that uh, you couldn't really make a job just in that alone, and so you would have to be very good at HTML and CSS and then know as much JavaScript as you needed to do the small handful of things that JavaScript was capable of doing. And there's been a growing divergence between um, the, those bodies of knowledge and a lessening of people who are really capable of mastering everything that goes on in front-end development anymore. Has that kind of th- thing happened in iOS?
1: Um, I, I would say that maybe it kind of the answer is maybe yes and no. <laughs> like in, in in front end, there's kind of this much clearer demarcation of there's people who know JavaScript, there's people who know React or one of the other frameworks, there's people who know Node, right, which is still a JavaScript technology, but it's on the back right, end. It's a back end. Mm-hmm. So those 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 uh, those idioms and those things that are normal for that kind of development are going to be different, even though the language is the same. Um, so it's a it's a very broad category of things that you could be good at Um, with ios i guess the answer is maybe uh no it hasn't changed because but the reason is because that's always been true so for for ios um it is it is similarly a pretty large uh collection of of related but separate um skills that you need to know how to do so you i i feel like you know calling ios developers full stack developers is not something it's not a not a a stretch because we need to be able to design and build a front end, a UI, right? And that involves things like views and that kind of stuff. We need to be able to do more back end type, you know, business logic where we're designing models and we're doing potentially intense uh, computations and stuff in the background um, using multiple threads, that kind of thing. We need to be able to involve a database. um, And then also we need to be able to talk to a, potentially a remote database through an API. So there's networking skills and stuff like that. So they're really, you know, an iOS app can certainly encompass all of the modern stacks that we, you know, that we associate with development today. Um, And and that's pretty much always been true. So uh, while you can specialize in certain areas and you might focus more on, I like doing more of the front end design work. Maybe I work with a designer, maybe I even do some design on my own, that kind of thing. Um, And that's where my specialty is and things like constraints and getting views to display and animations and stuff like that. Um, Or you might focus more on, I'm really all about kind of building the data model and doing the intense computation we might need to do, you know, involving things like uh, Core ML, which is the machine learning um, technologies that are built into iOS where you can actually do, you know, in some cases, almost big data style machine learning right on the device because they're so powerful.
0: Um, And I bet that's fairly new.
1: That is yeah that is that is fairly new um, and and it really has opened up a whole other um, area for iOS developers to focus on an area that. That in the past has really been a completely separate discipline
0: that has mm-hmm. been done on different hardware and in a right. different place in time, right? You need to know Python or yeah. C or some other technology entirely,
1: right? And now those things you can you can do some of those things directly on your iPhone, so you can involve Swift and Core ML, which is the li- the framework that Apple built for it, and just do it right inside the app. Um, so I don't know
0: why I said C there. Only Python. I don't think there's any <laughs> C machine learning. I apologize. Uh, Take that out in post.
1: All right. So, um, so I think it, it's it's uh, not a new phenomenon that this is happening, um, but it is something that that you know change. Or there is a, a, a wide array of options, um, and you can either choose to kind of be specific with one or a couple of them, or you can say I am going to try and do my best to be a more holistic iOS developer. And you bring me a project, and I can sort of build it for you from scratch, right, and that can kind of do all the pieces.
0: What has been your recommendation to juniors over the, the course of the time period that we're talking about? And has that changed? Do you do you think people ought to aim for being the holistic developer and being very capable in all the what sounds like an increasing number of areas of development, or should they be more narrow and, and focused, or at least to start out?
1: My I'm I'm a big fan of uh kind of um, providing a um, uh, advice around being basically what's co- what's called a T shaped developer, um, something that I learned from one of my one of our colleagues that we we work with at the Iron Yard back when we worked there, um, uh, and she described she did this really great way of describing this to her students. Being T-shaped essentially is where you know a decent amount about a variety of topics around your area of expertise, right? So if we're talking about iOS development, it's Swift, Objective-C, it's the iOS SDK, it's, um, you know, design and kind of the Apple's guidelines around how to build apps, stuff like that. That's kind of all your baseline knowledge. Um, And you might even branch out into things like you might do a little bit of Swift on the server, right? You might know a little bit about that, um, which is fine. And, And being kind of sort of uh rather than jack of all trades master of none you'd be jack of all trades master of one so the idea is that you would know various kinds of things within your field and you'd be decently proficient at a a broad swath of them but then there might be one or maybe a small collection couple things that you're that you either have a strong interest in or that you have maybe have a a particular aptitude for Um, and so you dig deep on those and you become sort of the person to go to about that thing um and so that's what I counsel my students to be. Uh, but what I I kind of caveat that slightly by saying, I wouldn't pick your the the long bar of your T right in the first couple of weeks of learning iOS, or even even your entire career at Lambda School, right? Our our program is nine months long. Um, before you're going to likely be looking for a job very seriously, because there's lots of stuff to learn. So my my advice is basically to be you know, open-minded and to and to explore different options and see what works for you with the idea that I'm probably going to plant my feet on one or a couple of these and really dig deep because I really enjoy working on that or I'm particularly good at it or something. Um, but just sort of work on that, the horizontal bar of your tea kind of in the beginning. And then over time, I think you'll see which of those couple of things you might gravitate towards and then you can go ahead and dig deep on that.
0: Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. I, I can't immediately call to mind any students who went through and kind of had one um, idea of a focus entering the program and then ran into something else and t- declared in week five. No, this is how I want to spend the rest right. of my software development career. But uh, there are a lot of different things to learn and in, in different sort of skill sets and different things that appeal to different sorts of personalities. And when you're first learning, I think that's a great time to take kind of the survey course approach and find out about what's out there. And also, I think that um, if you know uh, a little bit about a bunch of different areas, you can also start to see how they're suited for different problems and you get a better appreciation of what each of these things does. Why Why do we have CSS to begin with, or why do we have this aspect of JavaScript, or what's... A, What's the storyboard for in, in the Xcode? Why are all these things here? And if you immediately focus, then you lose that sense of, of what other things are doing. And sometimes, at least in front-end development, you can have problems solved multiple different ways, and some tools are better suited for some, some problems than others.
1: So in in at Lambda School I teach the first unit of um, iOS, which is the first weeks of content, and I have students coming in all the time and asking me questions about, uh, you know, I can I can do something X way or I can do something in in a different direction, um, and I've seen that you've showed us both, which is the right way to do it, um, and and that is. Pretty much always answered with the with the universal answer on programming, which is it depends. It right, depends. it yes. depends on on what you're <laughs> doing, which one you should do. And I think uh, I think your point is very valid in that um, if you focus too tightly on one aspect of the field that you're in, it's very easy for you to get locked into you know I have a hammer, that's a nail. I'm gonna I'm gonna solve that problem that mm-hmm. one way because I know how to do it, and and that's the best answer. It's like that's not the best answer. That is an answer it might be the best answer but if you don't have that broader context how can you really know so i think it's a really great point that that being that, that not focusing too much on that vertical bar of your t is is a good idea right you want to make sure you also continue to cultivate your broader understanding of of what you're learning
0: you've mentioned that um, you've taught at a couple places since we met and uh, you know in the world kind of beyond us there have been changes too uh, does Lambda have much contact with uh, the other schools? Do you guys kind of keep tabs on how other people are doing things to find out what the options are these days?
1: We do, yeah. We we certainly keep track of kind of the competitive landscape to understand how they're doing things, how they're solving stuff, how we might be able to learn from that, whether we're whether we think we're doing you know better or worse, that kind of thing. Um, and uh, it does seem like since we started in this in the in the kind of post secondary non college technical training industry, right, which includes right. things like the Iron Yard and Lambda School and, and lots of other boot camps, um, that, that boot camps have become uh, sort of both much bigger as an industry and yet also kind of smaller as a collection of competitors.
0: Yeah, there was a shakeout there. Yeah, years, wasn't there?
1: so there was this huge boom of like so many so many boot camps, and then obviously not all of them are going to be able to survive, and so there was then a kind of a contraction um, where there's some went out of business, some got bought by other companies, and kind of you know became more coalesced. Um, but I think it seems like now the 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 new way of doing things um, is. You know, We engaged in a 12-week immersive program at the Iron Yard where you come for three months and you, you in theory, do not have any other work that you're doing. You don't have a job. You focus entirely on that. And at the end of the three months, you pay up front. And then at the end of the three months, we help you get a job and you get a job. And then you, if you took out a loan to pay for that, then you paid the loan back and there we go. Um, the way that Lambda School approaches this stuff is very different. It's, for one thing, much longer. It's nine months long. Um, because we, we engage in things like a much longer capstone project. And we also engage in eight full weeks of, uh, computer science fundamentals where you learn in addition to whatever else you're learning, you also learn C and Python and you learn things like how to whiteboard problems, which is exactly what you're Mm going to have to do when you you go get a job. Right. Um, so that, that whole set of explanations has changed and then on top of that we have an entirely different way of financing these the system which this is not an ad for Lambda schools <laughs> go to lemonade school.com if you want to learn more about it um, we basically <laughs> engage in an isa which is you pay we 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 pay we get paid by you getting paid as a um, an employee of a company uh, through an income sharing agreement so so the the entire landscape i think has, has changed just in the boot camp arena, let alone what right, has and happened. In the whole world beyond that. Right, w- w- with online education, things that are online only, things like Khan Academy and, and other more focused sites. Um, Free Code Camp. Free I'm Code sure Camp.
0: iOS alternatives to that. The people who have made careers, uh, West Boss and... Uh, the React training people, and I know a handful of others in the JavaScript realm, where they have these uh, lengthy video courses or written material supplementing them, and I'm sure iOS has that kind of thing also.
1: Yeah, I mean, Ray Wenderlich is a, is a huge uh, presence in the iOS training world. Paul Hudson um, and John sundell there's a whole bunch of people that have kind of made a whole career really out of teaching people how to do this stuff in an online capacity where they provide typically pre-created things so videos right. books tutorials it's not live education like what we did at, at iron Nerd or what i'm doing at lambda it's it's uh pre-created and then you consume it on your kind of your own uh you you experience it
0: you use it I don't want to use consume because you hate that word but I, I in that context I don't like that word because what's <laughs> left after you consume the education is my concern
1: right which in theory it's still there because you know the book doesn't you don't eat the book right. you just you right. read it so I, I get it I totally get it um, but anyway you 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 know you use those those tools and you learn that kind of on your at your own pace um, so there's all that and then there is kind of the big eight hundred pound gorilla in the room right which is the uh, the, the traditional institutions of learning colleges, um, trade schools, things like that, that have been around for, you know, hundreds 100 plus years, hundred plus years, at least in the U S. Um, and kind of how that has, how their formula for things has changed uh, as well. It, 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 there's been a ton of, of movement there, even just in these, if we're, even if we're just limiting it to these kind of four years,
0: uh, that has changed quite a bit as well. Do you think the universities have kind of figured out this aspect of education? No. Because when we started, yeah, when we started, certainly that was not the case. They were teaching stuff that the professors remembered from the 90s and sending people off, you know, good luck to you.
1: Right. I mean, I just remember in one of my computer science courses, uh, getting some starter code for a project. And the comment at the top of the code was it was had been written by one of the professors. And the last, you know, the the creation date in the comment at the top in the header was like 1991. And this is That's... this is in like 2005. So it was C, which means probably it didn't right. need to change. Yeah, probably right? it right? was I mean, left alone. But at the same time, I feel like that is indicative of of the fact that that kind of teaching, particularly for computer science and and programming, is woefully stale and out of date and and is constantly at least a couple generations behind if not longer on kind of the state of the art in in programming
0: right and i think you can you can learn a lot i think in a, a traditional computer science curriculum but you should also anticipate if you go that route that you're going to need to spend a lot of time on your own transferring that body of skills into something that's immediately employable because the stuff that you're getting from, at least from the computer science curricula that I've heard of it is not that.
1: Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's actually pretty clear, even just in the name that for whatever reason, as an industry, we've decided that computer science as a, um, as a degree is the, is the place where you go get training and you get also, um, a sort of tacit approval of your skills, right? By getting that degree from an institution, they're essentially saying we've taught you these things, and we and we're accredited, so we are actually required to teach you these things. And by giving this piece of paper, you were we're sort of anointing you with this this approval that you are a computer scientist, right? Um, and the issue there, I think, is not even necessarily that they are not doing their job. I think the problem is that the computer science curriculum is for computer science. And right. what we do as a as a as a um you know as a craftsman or as a as a an employee or as a as an indie or as a contractor however you engage in the in the job world um what we actually do for a living is engineering and and so those two things are very different and and uh you know the skills that you learn for one don't necessarily um either apply or are very useful right in the other case. And I think that's a big part of the problem is that, you know, I think that's why sometimes people push back on, well, what's wrong with computer science? It's a great, it's a great way to learn all these things and stuff. It's like, yeah, maybe it It, it might, I don't, I don't actually have any real um, opinion on whether it's efficacy as far as teaching you computer science. But what I can tell you is that it's pretty poor at teaching you programming, teaching you how to be a competent developer in the modern age. Right.
0: It's kind of like if you, wanted to be an architect, and so you got a material science degree first. Right. And so you, you knew a lot about the molecular strengths of bonding of different sort of materials, but that's not actually what an architect is doing. The architect's job depends on someone knowing material science very well and sort of providing the environment to you, but uh, the actual skills that go into it, there's, there's very little overlap. And same from computer science to software development.
1: And if you're going to be building a compiler or you're going to be doing, you know, things of that nature, I think that certainly makes sense because that is computer science, right? Advancing the field of computers as a technology does require scientists to to both practice concepts that we've already figured out and to come up with new concepts that we can employ to to advance that field. I'm not in any way saying that that's not an important skill or that we don't need people oh, to sure. do those things. It's very much needed we wouldn't be here today if we didn't have people that could do that. But what I am saying is that the average developer working today in the field is likely not doing that kind of work. They are building applications. They are building software to be used by probably people who don't even know how computers work at all um, to to complete a task. And so that is engineering. That is not computer science. And I feel like that's probably where the disconnect is between people getting a computer science degree and then sort of that everyone pretending that that's a good way to to get trained for the actual job.
0: Yeah, and I don't know if universities are making moves towards remedying that, or if, I know at least in town, there's of course the UCF Software Development Bootcamp, which is really uh, partnering with an outside organization to provide, uh, well, a bootcamp, something that has a fairly limited time scope and focuses on software development, but I don't know of any university that uh, has taken this sort of bootcamp revolution as a sign that they ought to start developing this expertise in-house.
1: Yeah, the last, I mean, I haven't been involved in the university system in a while, and the last that I heard of it was from a few years ago. I had a few few people who were students um, in the computer science programs around coming to the local iOS meetup and kind of talking with them and understanding, you know, how they learned, you know, what's your deal? Oh, I'm a CS student. Okay, well, did you learn this in school? Like, did you learn how to be an iOS developer there? And, mm-hmm. and, and last I heard was, the answer was no. Um, they didn't learn any of that in, in any sort of school official capacity. They learned it on their own because they were interested in it. Um, and they they were in some cases allowed to engage in iOS type development for school projects, which I thought was kind of cool. Um, but f- the complaints that I heard were around along the lines of like, the professors didn't really consider it to be hard enough or real, um, or real enough or whatever, um, and, and gave them some, you know, some crap for, for not engaging in, in the hard work of computer science for their, for their project. And they were just sort of messing around with iOS, which, uh, you know, I, I could go, I could do an entire podcast about how that's wrong. But, <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I mean, there's very serious work that happens on iOS and it's, it's just as valid a, a platform as any to, to do difficult and interesting engineering type, you know, computer programming as anything else. Uh, but so that that's my most recent kind of touch point to that. And so from the looks of that, as from a couple years ago, I would guess that the movement has been slow, if any.
0: Yeah, everything about the rise of a program like Lambda suggests that uh, there just wouldn't have been space for you guys. It's kind of like if, if Blockbuster had gotten its act together, then Netflix could not have happened. But the, the big hidebound organization just couldn't get itself to move in the right direction fast enough
1: yeah and and to be fair to those institutions right they're gigantic they're very old and, and so it's like turning the Titanic right it's hard to do that um, particularly because there's in addition to the, to the institution itself, there's a large regulatory body or set of bodies, yeah. with, at least in the United States, with, within each state. And then there's a federal version of that. You know, The Federal Department of Education is involved. Um, so in addition to just the school itself wanting to change, they then have to get approval for all these changes to happen. And it just sort of it, it takes a long time to steer the ship in a different direction.
0: Yeah, um, as, as fast as they might want to move, they are sort of tethered by the regulatory bodies a lot to, to an extent I can't even begin to guess at and really i don't want to think about because i just don't like those things at all
1: which is something that we explain when we talk about you know if someone asks why are you not accredited as a company right lambda school is not an accredited institution and and p- part of the reason for that is because we don't want to be bound by those same restrictions right we i mean an ios potentially within the next six months we will be adding uh you know, pretty large changes to how we teach mobile development because of things like Swift UI, um, which is a declarative UI framework that Apple has announced this summer and will be launching in a couple of weeks. Um, it's going to take a while to get some traction, so we probably won't put that in right away, but it's something we're going to be adding, and it and it really is, um, in many ways, um, a cross-purposes from the way that we teach UI now. So it's going to be something we're going to have to add in, and then somehow explain to students this is one way to do it this is an entirely different but also valid way to do it um and it's going to require i don't know exactly how much but about decent portion of change to our curriculum and if we were bound by the accreditation rules that's just not going to happen like it would take so long to get any of that even approved that's why we are actively you know we're not interested in in becoming an institution that is of that type for that reason
0: right I, I would imagine uh, you've talked with me about the, uh, um, about that technology before, and it sounded like something that was probably influenced by React, among others, and mm-hmm. that Apple was capable of looking around at how other people did software development and cherry-picking good ideas to make their own stuff better, which everyone ought to be doing. And I think, in general, uh, software people are, are good at doing so clearly, I, I think we would agree that the software itself, or the the sort of content that we teach, is getting better. Um, would you say that uh, there have been any develops in developments in the teaching of software?
1: Yeah, um, I think. I mean, if if I compare my learning experience for learning how to become a programmer compared to how I teach my students to learn to become a programmer, I would say that that landscape has definitely improved quite a bit. I mean, I I went to a local university where, near where I live um, in the early 2000s and was part of their CS program um, and learned things like C and Java and that kind of stuff and uh, basically never was never asked to build anything with a GUI, um, the the graphical user interface for people who don't know, um, so a point and click interface compared to like something like a terminal or a command line where you just, line, type, everything. Where we just yeah. type everything, right? We were only ever really asked to make command line applications. Um, and so, uh, that certainly didn't do very much to prepare me for the modern software world because any software worth its, its weight at all, right. is going to have a complex and ideally intuitive Graphical interface, right? Because nobody, no regular person wants to use a terminal to get stuff done. They want to have icons and buttons and a mouse or a touchscreen or something, right? Um, so that, that training did not do much to prepare me for that reality. And if you compare that with the way that I teach my students now... We, you know, they they eventually will learn things like C and Python for purposes of data structures and understanding the understanding the underlying computer science concepts that we employ as iOS developers. Um, but from the very get go, from day one, we're building um, apps. We are building interfaces. I'm teaching them about design and color theory and 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 all that kind of stuff, all in a very holistic way. So I feel like if I were at a point in my life where none of this had happened and I wanted to become a developer. Um, My, for one thing, my options for doing so are much improved and, and, and greatly widened. I have a lot more options to, to get there from here to there. And the way in which I go about learning these things, I think is in many cases, it can be much more direct, um, direct to the things that I need to know. And, and quite frankly, more fun right i mean if you can build apps from day one and you can put stuff on your phone and you can show your parents and your family and your friends and right look what i built it's a it's just a silly little calculator or something right but it's it's a thing that i made happen i made i created it and brought it into the world and, and made it a product um that people can use i think that's a that's just a much more positive way of showing people kind of the magic of computing compared to here right this this yet another, you know, merge sort algorithm or whatever.
0: Right. Yeah. I think there are a handful of things i see on the front end that are really exciting in, in education and taking away some of the pains that used to exist. Yeah. Uh, for one thing that the breadth of educational materials we've talked about before, that there are some people who are just really good at putting these videos together and explaining things and being very engaging and stuff. Uh, there are whole sites. Um, code pen is probably the, the one that comes to mind first. of uh, it's like the show and tell of the internet. You just, you can put together HTML, CSS, JavaScript, and say, I made a thing. Here's my dancing dog or the solar system or a working piano keyboard, and then read over the code and see exactly the, that finished product. Um, lots of Slack communities out there that people can join and just drop in. And it seems like a. I mean, there used to be things like IRC once upon a time, but Slack is just better. Yes. <laughs> you know, a, a, a better form of communication around these kind of topics. And a lot of people help other communities online, reactive flux and, and things like that, where you can go and dev. Two is a, another one I'm aware of where, uh, you can read helpful material. You can get in discussions around different things that you're trying to figure out. Um, free Code Camp I keep coming back to because that seems like the the granddaddy of that whole uh, website-focused uh, educational content platform.
1: And you can learn a shocking amount about front and back-end development from that one website.
0: Oh, can you? I mean, when it first came out, I thought, geez, this is going to be a real problem for us at the Iron Yard." And, <laughs> And I would try to steer people to it. You know, when people came in to interview, I'd say, have you done this? Have you gotten as much as you can out of this first? And it turns out, I think, that uh, if you don't have some prior training or just inclination towards uh, the engineering way of thinking, then you do need somebody else to to kind of guide you along. And, and that's the, the extra value, one of the sources of extra value that we provided. But if you are... Just an engineer or a technical person, whether by training or nature, uh, you can learn. Just uh, yeah, shocking is the right word of the amount of stuff that you can pick up out there.
1: Yeah, I mean, if you if you were to believe only the random nerds that 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 hang out in the hacker news, you know, comment section and and various oh, subreddits. Oh, yeah. you, you, nobody ever needs to get any training from anyone else because you can just go get online training for free. You can even get it for free. There's so much, there's so many resources available to learn how to program online that are completely free. No one should ever have to pay for anything. Um, and to me, to me, that's just sort of a laughable idea, right? Not everyone can learn in that way. There's various learning modalities and you need to provide options. And that's why things like universities exist and lambda school exists and, and West boss and all the different ways in which you, you can engage in this learning. I think it's great. I, I really think it's great that there's so many different ways that you can learn. Um, and that no matter what your learning style happens to be, um, you can find something that works for you.
0: And also, uh, another area that I want to talk about was the, uh, tools like code sandbox, which, um, for a while, if you wanted to do anything in JavaScript, the in the period we're talking about, step one was install Node and then download 2 trillion gigabytes of stuff that apparently you need for some reason that no one really understands and go through this just horrible build process that will take you five days before you get to the point that you can actually start typing in anything that works. And that just, I I can't even imagine how many people that drove from the field forever. Uh, I think that's what was responsible, I think, for the phrase JavaScript fatigue, which was very much in vogue around 2017 or so. And uh, people figured out that, hey, this build process is automatable. Why don't we automate it? And so now you can go onto a site like, uh, like Code Sandbox, like CodePen does this to some extent, and say, I want to install all of these things. React version 16.3, click a button, And that's all done for you. And now you get to actually write the thing that you want to write. And that taking away that pain is, is just, oh.
1: And that's basically, that's done so that you can experiment with that thing right if you want to play with react right and it's
0: just right there in the browser and you don't have to install anything or worry about error messages on the command line or this version is out of sync with that version and you know all the stuff that anyone who has installed software knows is gonna go wrong eventually but now it doesn't have to go wrong for you your very first time learning something
1: yeah that's that's fantastic that's similar things are kind of happening a little bit with with swift in particular not necessarily ios because that you need all of the ios tools and they're pretty much baked into xcode so you don't have much choice but if you want to learn if you want to learn swift there's um there's this concept called a repl which is not unique to ios or swift it's read evaluate print loop which is essentially a way to describe an environment a self-contained environment that can read evaluate and print out results from commands that you give it in a particular language so there's javascript repls there's there's actually now swift repls that are available online um, so it's built into to the terminal in the Mac. So if you wanted to do it on your local Mac, you could do that. But the cool thing is because Swift is open source, uh, it runs on Linux and Windows now, and so you can actually get it installed on web servers. And then people can host the REPL on a server and then provide a uh, like a JavaScript and HTML front end um, where you can have you know a browser based REPL of of Swift, um, and you can play with Swift features um, right in your browser, and you don't even need particular computer with a particular configuration
0: yeah so i think that the tooling has gotten an awful lot better and that educational tooling as well as the the tools that are actually being used to build things the languages themselves we've said a couple times have gotten better in terms of providing more power and um, more um, intuitive ways of doing things many times Um, to to take the devil's advocate position, do you think there's anything that has gotten worse in all of this uh, churn and and development?
1: Yeah. Um, I mean, I guess the one kind of constant that will probably always be true is that this is an ever-changing landscape. Um, And so there are things that you might learn that ultimately become obsolete, right? So that that you could argue that that learning was, was not, you know, not ne- necessarily a thing that was a good it's not idea. A wasted effort. It's, it's not a wasted effort, but but now that it's no longer useful, you know, it's sort of now this knowledge that you have that doesn't really help you that much. Um, so there's that. Uh, and then um, I also feel like maybe this is just me, but I feel like it's both kind of gotten a little simpler in some ways, but in many other ways, it's gotten more complicated. Um, and so, learning how to be a competent developer in the modern landscape, requ- there's a lot more required of you um, than there used to be. Um, at least, it's just kind of my my feeling on it. Both as a developer, you know, as someone who develops software of my own, and also um, as an educator of other people who are learning how to build software.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: For example, Swift UI, It's a brand new thing, and 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 eventually it might supplant the way that we we design UIs. Um, on ios and it's becomes the way to do it but for probably at least a couple of years we will have to do both we'll do mostly ui kit now uh, we'll learn we'll have to learn how swift ui works we'll have to understand its nuances we'll have to then eventually in a, develop best
0: practices around it
1: right and then do both we'll have to be able to do both and then eventually we'll be able to to cut out one and, and one will will win right and we'll be able to just kind of focus on one as like an example of that that's already happening Swift is certainly a language that you must know to be a competent, modern iOS developer. But Objective-C is the language we used for decades before that um, and is the language we used Wait, for dec-
0: decades, plural.
1: Yeah, it's been around since the mid 80s um, and was used on, oh, okay. on on, mostly. It's not something that Apple invented, but they, they certainly are the most popular user of it. Um, okay. And it's been around since the 80s. Uh, and it had been in use for Mac development for I think virtually that entire time, um, oh, wow. and then was the only way to develop iOS apps until 2014. So for the first mm-hmm. five, r- roughly five years of uh, six years of I- of iOS's existence, it was also the only way to develop iOS apps. So there is a huge, huge collection of legacy code out there that's written in Objective-C, the, in the and and that is something that we have to contend with right like even if we're writing swift apps now if you start from scratch you might end up joining a company where they've got this gigantic hulking application that has been around for a decade and two-thirds of it is written in, in a language that you may not have that much experience at so that's another that's kind of an example of how swift you might will probably end up looking right like you'll 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 really have to juggle two things for a decently long amount of time before you can kind of focus on one thing again that's just kind of a reality of, of the landscape, right? So I'm not sure if that's good or bad, but it seems like kind of a negative.
0: Do you think that uh, it's incumbent on every iOS developer to get a working knowledge of both of those things, or could they kind of put their egg in one basket the other and say, I'm going with the new thing, or I think there's going to be enough of the older way around for a long enough period that I'm not going to worry about the the new thing for a couple of years?
1: Um, that was certainly that second way of thinking about it was certainly true until fairly recently, um, and there have been there's still holdouts I'm sure that are just like no Swift I hate Swift right I'm not doing it, um, so that that certainly is true and that is I think possible. Um, if we're talking about our audience right the junior audience yeah. of the show I would say that that is not a great recipe for success right. Um, you you I would not counsel any junior iOS developer to focus entirely on one or the other. Um, because, uh, you don't have the luxury of being that picky, right? As a junior developer, you, you, you have to kind of build your, um, you know, your expertise and your reputation in the industry, uh, before you can be a curmudgeon like that. Um, and so you, you know, it really behooves you to, to, I think have a very strong, very solid working knowledge of Swift because it's the present and the future, But you still need to be have a working knowledge, at least, of Objective C because it is the language we're all standing on, right? It's why we why we're as successful as we are, Um, and there is such a huge code base of existing legacy code out there that you know you just you you won't be able to avoid it entirely. Um, And I have seen um, junior developers interview, you know, in the modern context, right, within the last year or two, who. Who uh, are asked non-trivial Objective C questions in the interview, and they and they are expected to be able to competently answer them. So it's it's something that that you know they really need to know both. It's just it's it's a reality of of the current landscape of of iOS development. It, it, I think eventually that stuff will age out, but it's not happened yet.
0: I hope they were at least asked those positions when they were interviewing for Objective C jobs, where they were going to be using that technology on a day to day basis.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I also certainly hope so. We could have a whole other, an entirely other episode about how inter- the interviewing process for development is broken. I think we've done that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it, it, I don't I don't know the answer to that question. Um, but that would be certainly the optimal uh, thing is like, don't ask this if you're not actually going to be asked to use it.
0: Yeah. I would say I I probably underrate how much things have improved in front end development because there's just the there's a whole category of things that we just don't have to do anymore because some old browsers are just have been wiped off the face of the earth. And so we don't need to craft special cases and workarounds to deal with those that used to be just um, the worst part of that stuff was that it didn't make any sense. It was kind of a, a, a bunch of voodoo that you had to know what things to type, even though you didn't really get why these, these things were necessary. It wasn't something you could figure out from first principle. Somebody would stumble on it and then spread it around.
1: Um, and the browser wars have happened a couple of times, but they, within the last right, couple of that, years, there was another spate of like Chrome and Internet explorer and all these different things coming out and they all had different standards and you had to put in your HTML or JavaScript, you know, six different, and if this, if else this, right? Um, and I feel like that probably is lessened at least. Yeah,
0: that has smoothed over a lot, a lot. Uh, both on CSS and, and the JavaScript side, and also a lot of the the big frameworks, part of their selling point, although it's less important than it used to be, is that they deal with all of those kind of browser incompatibilities for you, which is nice. Uh, as far as whether anything has gotten worse, and it's boy, so much has improved, but the only thing I think that has gotten worse is just that there's so much more material out there And, uh, you know, at one time you could say, well, if you really apply yourself, you could be a full stack developer and you'd know basically all the JavaScript that there was and you'd be competent at CSS and HTML and then you could pick a server-side language of your choice, throw in a a SQL dialect, and there you go. You are the total package. And uh, that lasted until probably mm, 2012, 13, 14, And then that got to be too much, and then we had front-end developer, and then a front-end developer could pretty much learn everything on the front-end, maybe pick one big framework, but there were only like two, and uh, know everything there was to know about CSS also, and go happily on your way, and you were master of that domain. And uh, now, boy, if you are totally on top of one of the JavaScript frameworks, and you're still aware that CSS is a thing, I'd say you're doing pretty well.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think the same thing is true on, on, on probably every platform, right? There's just so many, I think because software is eating the world, right? There's, we're going to get a lot more people in, you know, reinventing them, the, making a better mousetrap, and we're going to end up with just a lot more choice and then because there's more choice, more companies will pick different things, right? So then when you go get a job, they're like, well, we love Ember or we love this thing. And it's like, oh, I've never even heard of that before.
0: <laughs> right. And I should say it's, it's, really, it's mainly worse if you approach things, as I tend to do, with a sort of completionist mindset that I have to know all that there is. See, so you no, know, and- Brian,
1: you got you to gotta ride the algorithm. Just let, just let the content wash <laughs> over you. You can't, you
0: can't right. worry about looking at everything. I really can't because there's just so much. I need to like start a list for myself of these are the technologies I pledge I will never know. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's that's I'll sign that pledge. It's a that's a good one.
0: I, I I mean I have one of those lists from a long time ago. I have like ActionScript is on there, Flash is on there, uh, stuff that people listening now have no idea what I'm talking about
1: i have quite a few javascript based cross-platform mobile frameworks that have come oh, and gone yes right
0: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And there might be some of them you don't even know are listed twice because a thing has changed it's name. Right. and you're like well I, I don't have to know either of these <laughs> yeah. there are some of those but there's really there's no need to know all of it and i i think it, it can be viewed as an opportunity that there are all these different approaches out there because there's more likely, I think, that you're going to run into one that really strikes you where you live and that you're going to be happier about mastering. And there are people using a bunch of these different things. So, you know, find someone that you like and become great at it.
1: Yeah. So I think based on that positive note about kind of what's improved and what's gotten worse and how the landscape has changed, there's all this churn, right? Um, How... What, what advice could we give to junior developers who are maybe entering this field and maybe they come from an industry that doesn't have this much churn so they're not used to riding all these different waves and, and dealing with all this all this change? Um, what advice would you give to juniors as far as not just maybe how to learn these things, but then also how to navigate this this vast sea of options and all of this this change kind of over the, the course of their whole career?
0: Well, one thing I would uh, sort of caution people coming in is that this is not an aberration. And I'm sure if we were having this podcast in 2014, looking back to 2009, we'd be talking about how much simpler things were way back. remember when George W. Bush was president and there was only like one iPhone and one language for it and JavaScript was a simpler thing. And within that period, there was this enormous explosion. And between now and 2024, there's going to be another enormous explosion. That's just the way things are in this field. Uh, But there's a guy named Bob Martin who has a, a good career going around talking about software development. And he likes to make the point that the fundamentals never change. There are some concepts that have been true in software development since the field was founded decades and decades ago. And if you kind of tease out from your learning what those things are, and as you start to learn a couple different technologies, you'll see commonalities and be able to identify what those things are. That makes learning the next thing so much easier. And I think that's the the biggest thing, is to figure out what are the things that don't change or change very, very slowly and get really good at them and uh, let some of the churn happen sort of whoosh over your head and, and don't really worry about it so much and focus on the things that are are rock solid.
1: Yeah, I really like the analogy you used to give to students where you'd say that when you're starting out in development and you know learning how to be a programmer, it's like going to Japan and learning to be a brain surgeon where you have to both learn Japanese and you also have to understand and learn how brain surgery functions, the tools involved, right. the techniques, all of that kind of stuff, right? And that's a huge huge ask right that's a lot to, to ask for someone to do to do both those things at the same time um, and really when you're learning how to be a programmer you, you're doing that right you're learning a language which we reason we call them languages is because they very much are like a, a spoken or a written language where it has a syntax it has a grammar it has it has uh you know a flow and it has idioms and it has things that are that are normal and a style for that kind of that kind of approach.
0: And it has a, a speaker, the computer who you have to communicate with, who is much less forgiving. It's like French waiter stereotype level of just demands in terms of your perfection with the, the grammar and the syntax and things.
1: Exactly. And then you're also learning how to do brain surgery, right? You're learning about the, the you're learning about algorithms and, and data structures and stuff like that. Um, and I think your advice that you just gave about, you know, figure out the basics and see what is constant. And then try and remember the, get solid on them and then remember that when you learn a new thing that you're not really going to start from scratch. And I think your analogy about learning brain surgery in Japanese at the same time is very apropos because once you do know how to perform brain surgery and you've learned Japanese, then if you move to Brazil... And you become a brain surgeon. You have to learn Portuguese because you have to converse with the nurses and the other doctors and the patients and everyone. But you already understand what the tools are and how to perform the brain surgery, uh, you know, tasks and things. So it so the the burden of knowledge or the burden of learning is much lower than it was the first time around. Um, and I think that's really great advice f- from that analogy and also from you know from the advice you just gave about learn the fundamentals and the fundamentals tend not to change. And then uh, Remember that when you, when, you, when you learn a new thing and you feel overwhelmed, try and remember, oh, yeah, I already know half this, right? This is not actually right. a brand new thing. This is a thing that I already know something about, and I just kind of have to focus on the parts that I don't understand.
0: Yeah, and once you've learned your first thing, especially if you're learning something that is newly developed, there's a decent chance that the new thing is a simpler way of doing one of your old things. Right,
1: right and also remember as an an example of of our of the current state of iOS development swift ui is something that was announced in a couple of months ago at the developer conference and then has been worked on over the summer in various forms of betas and it's changed a ton just in the amount <laughs> of time that it's been out so particularly if you're learning a new thing that is new a brand new thing like you were just saying right that that hasn't existed before, remember that even that new thing will likely change. And as you're like, as you're learning it, it might change. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. And that's another kind of constant is that this stuff is always moving um, and try to remember that it's important to, to keep up with that stuff and to, and to, and and to not stress too much, right? Like you're not like you said, you're not going to know everything ever, right? You're never going to be able to get it all in your head. Um, and it's easy to if you are a completionist, which I feel like you definitely are, and I feel like I am as well. Um, I fought Twitter's you know ride the algorithm. I I put it in reverse chronological order, and every time that Twitter resets it inside my app because they constantly want me to be algorithm based on my consumption of that of those tweets. I'm like, no, I want reverse chronological because I want to be able to read everything. Um, so I'm very much that way too, but with programming, you have to take more of kind of, a uh, you know, I'll learn that when I need to learn it kind of approach rather than yes. I must learn everything.
0: And especially don't try to learn the thing that is very brand new, um, mainly for the reason that it is going to have tremendous amount of churn. Let somebody who is pretty familiar with whatever it is, the general topic, uh, go through the first couple 0.1, 0.2, 0.5 versions of it. And once things seem to have settled down, and get some level of maturity and shows some staying power. Uh, maybe you, if you hear of something brand new today and then over Christmas break, you're thinking, hmm, I'd kind of like to learn some new technology. Go back and look, you know, four months later and see, is this still around? Did it catch on? Is it, does it look like it's um, not changing every other week? But don't as soon as you see a headline in Hacker News or you hear a podcast, jump out and find out about, about something that is uh, you know hot off the presses. Right,
1: because it could already be gone. Even <laughs> even in that one week where it came out and you heard about it, it could even already be gone. That stuff changes so fast that um, sometimes things stick around, sometimes things don't, and it, and that's really good advice to to make sure that that the stuff that you're that you're bothering to learn, the stuff that you do choose to actually engage with, um, has. Both staying power and a presence in the market, because there's nothing worse than learning a skill that is not marketable, right? That you you can't get employed doing. Um, so so keep that in mind too. That this stuff, it's not like uh, welding or electric, you know, electricians or plumbing, where where the the stuff is is pretty much the same. There might be things here or there that change, but it's pretty solid as a profession. Our profession has changed a ton in the last forty years, and I would imagine that it will just continue to do so.
0: All right. I think we can wrap things up there, Ben. And if people have become intrigued by our style of podcasting and would like to learn more about us and hear more shows, where can they go and what can they do?
1: Everything you want to learn about our show is at our website, nbc.fm, where you can listen to our past shows right on the page if you'd like. You can find out about how to subscribe to our podcast. We're basically available anywhere you get your podcast. So just search for Model View Conversation and you should find us. Um, If you do use iTunes for your subscription needs, if you could give us a rating and review, it would really help us out. Um, And if you'd like to send us feedback about the show, suggest new topics or anything like that, you can tweet us at NBC podcast.
0: Thanks. And we'll talk to you again soon.